Welcome to the Cornerstone Baptist Church Podcast. My name is Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone, and today we are in week 24 of our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism. Today I'm going to be talking to you about questions 62, 63, and 64. And these questions this week are really they're discussing the role that our individual good works play in the big picture of not only our salvation, but also our Christian life. Now, last week we learned that it is 100% necessary for us to possess a perfect righteousness in order to be made right with God. I mean, there's no way that we're coming back into the presence of God unless we have a righteousness to offer. But we also learned that this necessary righteousness is not something that we can earn. It's something that is given to us by faith in Jesus. In other words, the righteousness that gets us back into fellowship with God is not our own. It is a gift. It is an alien righteousness like we learned last week. We are saved by grace. We are made righteous by faith. We are saved by Jesus's good works and not our own. But if all of this is true, and it is, then what is the point of our being good? What is the point of our living as Christians and seeking to do good works? If we're saved by grace, what part does our personal pursuit of righteousness play in our lives? Okay, well, that's really kind of the setup here. Let's get into question 62, and let's begin to answer this question. Here's question 62. But why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? And here's the answer. Because the righteousness which can stand before the judgment seat of God must be perfect throughout and wholly conformable to the divine law, whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Now, that, that's that's a pretty you know, succinct summary here of the the role of righteousness and how you know what that should look like. We need something, a righteousness that is perfect, wholly conformable to the divine law. And we, as sinful human beings who are marred by sin, who are subject to the depravity of sin, uh, we have an imperfect righteousness that is defiled with sin. I mean, I'm thinking of Isaiah 64, that our righteousness is as a filthy garment in the eyes of God. But really, it's important for us to have the right posture of heart here. Uh, in order to, to gain an understanding of what question 62 and, and its answer are trying to do, I think it's important for us to go back and just gain a foundational understanding of the, the posture of heart that the kingdom of God demands, right? We go all the way back, for instance, to the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And that's what I want to do. I want to draw our attention to the posture of heart that Jesus says is absolutely essential for anyone interested in the kingdom of God. I want to take us all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, um, most of us, most of you who are listening, um, maybe you're, you're members of the church, you've been a part of Cornerstone for a while, and you'll know that um, in the last year, I, I preached through the Sermon on the Mount. We, we um, looked at Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. That's where the Sermon on the Mount is contained. And this is one of the most readily identified uh, messages, even outside of the church. If people are going to try to understand what Jesus is teaching about his ministry and about his message, his kingdom, uh, they're, they're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this sermon appears in the first book of the New Testament. It, it is um, not the first recorded statement of Jesus, but it is by far the longest and most comprehensive of his public sermons. And it seems very clear that Matthew, 
um, views this message as the foundation upon which Jesus' life, ministry, and message and kingdom are going to be established. I mean, it's an amazing sermon. It's groundbreaking on multiple levels. Um, It's the sermon that broke 400 years of divine silence uh, and at the same time introduced the world to the kingdom of God in a way that it had never known before. This, This sermon describes what human life and human community look like when they come under the rule of God's grace as opposed to um, the, the world of the Pharisees were trying to bring human life and human community under the rule of God's law and even man-made law. So this was very groundbreaking. It was, um, it was intended to shake things up. Some people love this sermon. Some people hate this sermon. But they couldn't really ignore it because it took the value system of our sinful world and it turned it on its head. And specifically in this sermon, Jesus is pointing his finger at the religious legalist and the hypocrites. And he's telling them that, that if they continue to live the way they're living, they're going to have no part in the kingdom of God. And that was crazy because the, the Pharisees and the scribes, those who were listening to this sermon, they were very fastidious. They were very particular in how they obeyed what they understood to be the law of God. And in the sermon, Jesus even says that not one part of the law of God is going to be overlooked. But he says it's really not about um, our what we do. It's not about a, relis- a list of religious duties that we must perform. The kingdom of God is about a posture of heart. And that's how the sermon starts. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, we might have expected Jesus uh, kicking off his ministry, kicking off his um, whole you know, the, the posture of what he's come to establish, we might expect him to come out with a list of things and says, you know, if you want to get into heaven, then you must do X, Y, and Z. But that's not what he does. He comes and he says, look, in order to be part of this kingdom, you must be poor in spirit. Now, this is completely different. This is about a posture of heart, not about a list of religious duties to perform. But what does that mean? The the phrase poor in spirit, it means to be completely impoverished. It means to recognize one's own poverty of soul. I mean, even in our day, when we use this term poor, it refers to someone who leads the life of a beggar, someone who has nothing. They have no property, no money, no power, no status. They are completely dependent upon others for support. They are empty with nothing to offer. But Jesus says, I'm not talking about a person who is physically poor. I'm talking about a person who is spiritually poor, who understands that they have nothing to offer to God. The poor in spirit are those who have come to see and feel the brokenness in their heart and the bankruptcy in their soul. When it comes to righteousness, like question 62 is getting at, when it comes to true righteousness, the poor in spirit realize that they're no better than a beggar on the street. Even if they had a little money in their pocket, it would not even come close to paying off the debt that they owe to God. They are truly poor in spirit. And no one wants to find themselves in this place. Our natural inclinations cause us to assume that, yes, we may not have a lot to offer, um, but we're, we're not perfect, but we're far from poor. Right? I mean, the Pharisees, for instance, they understood the role of sin. 
But they had gathered around to hear Jesus' message, and when they heard this, they would have scoffed at it. They would have completely rejected it. This is not what religious people want to hear. But this is the point of entry into the kingdom of God. This is how we are made to feel when we see ourselves the way that the gospel exposes us, when we see the holiness of God in its proper place and we see our sinfulness in, uh, in juxtaposition. And that's what the gospel is intended to do. And that's why our, our good works cannot make us righteous before God because our good works are full of holes. See, the gospel does two things in us. It, it tears us down and then it builds us back up. The gospel shows us that our hearts are so desperately wicked that there is no hope that we can overcome our past sin, much less do enough to earn eternal life. The gospel holds up the law of God, demanding that we keep it perfectly, and then shows us that we really have no chance of keeping it perfectly because we're so utterly sinful. We are utterly incapable of pleasing God on our own. The gospel puts us on our knees before God, and that's exactly where Christ wants us. He wants us to see ourselves the way God sees us. Because only those who have come to understand their poverty of spirit before God are truly fit for the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit means an absence of spiritual pride, an absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. Jesus doesn't want us to trust in ourselves. He wants us to trust in Him. Being poor in spirit is this tremendous awareness that we are nothing in the presence of God. I'll give you a couple of examples here. Um, the, the prophet Isaiah understood poverty of spirit. In, in Isaiah 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he came into the temple and he saw the Lord and he fell onto his knees. Now, he's, he's a prophet of God. He's one of the most righteous men in all of the world. But when he saw God, he fell to his knees and he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. I am unclean. And everyone around me is unclean as well. That's a person who has come to understand his poverty of spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was like the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the most righteous man in his class of of righteousness-pursuing Pharisees. He had this spiritual resume that would shame everyone listening to this podcast. But when he stood before Christ, he came to realize that all of his religious past was worthless. Paul said in Philippians, I count it to be loss. My my religious heritage, my religious upbringing, my religious resume is like rubbish. It's like dung in the eyes of God. He understood he was poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be like the tax collector in Luke 18, uh, who would not even look up to heaven, but instead beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. I am nothing more than a sinner. So when Jesus says, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he is making it clear that the kingdom is fit only for those who feel that their only hope of salvation lies outside of themselves. Because on their own, they are nothing more than a beggar. You see, our righteousness, our good works are not part or the whole of our righteousness before God because we are are utterly sinful. We depend upon a righteousness outside of ourselves. There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental posture of the citizens of the kingdom of God. It is the entry point into the Christian life. And that's what question 62 is trying to help us understand. The righteousness that restores our relationship with God is not our own because our own righteousness is imperfect. 
It's full of holes. It's like Swiss cheese. Our good works are incomplete, but Jesus' good works are perfect. And therein lies our hope. Now, let's turn to question 63. How is it that our good works merit nothing, while yet it is God's will to reward them in this life and in that which is to come? And the answer is this. The reward comes not of merit, but of grace. This is, again, it's a posture. It's an understanding of what the Christian um, gospel is all about. Um, Years ago, I read a quote that helped put this answer into perspective for me. It comes from Dallas Willard, and the, the quote goes like this. Grace, the grace of God specifically, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. And, and this kind of goes against our natural instincts as well. We naturally think that in order for us to obtain what we desire, most we will have to work for it. At least, I think that most of us think this way. We're born with what I consider to be a debtor's ethic, which causes us to think that in order for us to get something, we must earn it. Well, the gospel destroys that ethic. Undeserved mercy, unearned reward doesn't make sense in the world, but they do in the kingdom of God. The rewards of blessing in this life and heaven in the life to come are not the result of our effort, but they are the work of God's grace. They are the the gifting of God to those who believe in Jesus. Okay, question 64. But does not this doctrine make men careless and profane? That's a question we all have to... That's a question that the Apostle Paul had to deal with in the New Testament. I think Jesus did as well, but Paul maybe more profoundly, especially in Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? This idea of uh, we don't earn anything, but God just grants it to us on the basis of grace, does that not make us careless and profane? In other words, does that make us just abandon anything you know, resembling a faithful, righteous life? And the answer is no, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Okay, so let's think back to the Sermon on the Mount for a, for a minute. Jesus said that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if we hope to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you may know this already, um, but the scribes and the Pharisees had developed this list of what they called commandments and prohibitions, things that they must do and things that they must not do. And they added these things to the law of God, the, the Ten Commandments specifically. And they had a list of 240 commandments and 365 prohibitions. And this goes back to you know not only the time of Jesus, but even after that. And so when Jesus says that our righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, is he saying that we have to keep all the 240 commandments and 365 prohibitions that they had? Well, no. Christian righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees in type, not in degree. The righteousness that is pleasing to God is the inward righteousness that begins in the heart and then faithfully seeks to live out the law in life. In other words, we don't do what we do in order to earn God's love, but because we have come to um, embrace and see the love of God in the gospel, we seek to honor Him in a thankful life of obedience. We call this sanctification. It is an ongoing work of God's grace where we, the people of God, over the course of our lives, are transformed more and more into the image of Christ. 
And God enables this in us by His Spirit and His Word. He grows us in faithfulness more and more to turn from sin and to turn to righteousness. And we don't do this perfectly. But we do this because God has begun to do a work in us. In other words, this this whole process, this sanctification process, it starts when we are born again and it continues throughout our lives as a fulfillment of a promise that God made to Ezekiel Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, and he made it to us as well. Now, in Ezekiel 36, God is uh, talking about, he's foretelling the new covenant that is to come. And he says this about the new covenant. This new covenant is going to be better than the old covenant because God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'm going to put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, here's what I think he's getting at in the context of born-again believers. If you are a born-again believer in Christ, if you're a Christian, then you have the spirit of God within you. But that doesn't mean that you can dispense with the law of God. That doesn't mean that you don't have to obey God anymore because the work of the Spirit is to give you a new heart. It's to write God's law on those hearts and then to enable us to walk in obedience to God. That's what he says. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We don't do this in order to earn God's love, but because God's love has already been poured out on us by grace. You see, Jesus is not interested in empty, superficial, hypocritical religious practice. Religion is a word that has the ability to conjure up both positive and negative ideas when it is used. Uh, The term religion, when used in a negative sense, it refers to the empty religious rituals and formalities that are devised by man and are prevalent in the church even today. And, And behind the negative use of the term is the belief that religious practices are sufficient for us to earn God's favor. Religion says, I obey the rules so that God will love and accept me. And when this idea is full-blown, it teaches people that in order to be saved, we must simply keep all the rules. But in reality, that's a lie. And Jesus exposes it. He exposes it when he confronts the the Pharisees, because that's what their hope was. If I can do enough things, God will love and accept me. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel says, God accepts me on the basis of Jesus' work and righteousness. And in response to this grace that I've been shown, I therefore will obey and walk in His statutes and in His rules out of a thankful heart for what God has done for us. And that's really the point of not only questions 63 and 64, that's really the point of the gospel. It's understanding where our righteousness truly comes from and how that righteousness motivates us to be more like God. I hope this has been helpful. Thank you so much for joining me today to discuss this particular section in the Heidelberg Catechism. I hope you will join me again next week. Next week, we're going to look at uh, Lord's Day 25 together, and we're going to discuss questions 65, 66, 67, and 68. We're going to be looking at the Holy Sacraments. This is going to be a lot of fun. So join me again next week for that. If you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBC Wiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cornerstone Wiley. And you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play uh, to stay up to date on all the new content. Thank you so much for listening.